I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. And joining me today is uh, author Corey Doctorow. Uh, He's the author of The Lost Cause, amongst many other books, but it's 30 years from now. We're making progress, mitigating climate change, slowly but surely. But what about all the angry old people who can't let go? For young Americans, a generation from now, climate change isn't controversial. It's just an overwhelming fact of life. And so are the great efforts to contain and mitigate it. Even when national politics oscillates back to right-wing leaders, the momentum is too great. These vast programs cannot be stopped. But there are still those Americans, mostly elderly, who cling to their red baseball caps, their grievances, their huge vehicles, their anger and to their alternative news sources that reassure them that their resentment resentment is right and pure and that climate change is just a giant scam. Author Corey Doctorow is an activist and journalist who was recently inducted into the Canadian Science Fiction and Fantasy Hall of Fame. Welcome to the show, Corey. Nice to have you on. What a pleasure to be on. Thank you for having me. Okay, and I, I guess I all should mention you are a New York Times bestselling author as well. Um, I am. Yeah. Uh, so, anyway, as I said, glad to have you on the show. Okay, the, the lost cause, what are we talking about? Um, one of the questions you say that the lost cause a- asks is, what do we do about people who cling to the belief that their own children are the enemy, when in fact they are often the elders that we love? So what's this... What are we talking about here? We have a whole group of young people who want to do something, are doing something to mitigate climate change, but we get those old people who just don't want any change. Is Well, look, the, the lost cause is set in a world after we started taking the climate emergency seriously. That doesn't okay. mean it's ended. You know, when you sink enough heat into the ocean, there's going to be a lot of polar cap melting no matter what. But what has changed is that we're dealing with it. We're, you know, moving coastal cities inland. We're um, uh, building permanent housing for people whose uh, homes have been rendered uninhabitable by wildfire or zoonotic plague, flooding, or just uh, temperature swings. And uh, the tens of millions of young people around the world who are doing this have been rescued not from the effects of of climate change, but from the despair of the climate emergency, where we can see the harm unfolding all around us, but we don't seem to be taking it seriously. We're not doing anything about it. It's like we're trapped in a bus barreling towards a cliff, and we keep saying, stop the bus, turn the bus, and the people up in in, in first class are like, well, there's probably not a cliff, and if there is, maybe we can build some wings before we hit the bottom, or we're going so fast, we'll jump the cliff. And besides, if we were to turn the wheel, the bus could roll, and someone could break an ankle, and no one would want that. So this is something where we're finally dealing with it, and there's hope. Uh, replacing that nightmarish sense of fatalistic fear. And what the book probes is what you do with the losers of a just revolution, something that we've really never figured out as a species. Um, You know, there are lots of good causes that triumph, but even after they do, the losers don't always accept that they were on the wrong side. And, And this is about the fact that the people who fight for generations to change the status quo aren't necessarily the people who are well-suited to defending the status quo after they win. And when the people who are advocating for a muscular, realistic, humane climate response find themselves in charge instead of in the opposition, they are uh, not uh, well-suited to defend that new ground, and it's about how they learn to defend it. 
Okay. So can we talk about it? How we, well, I don't know, but let's, how we, how they do learn to defend it. Uh, it kind of, as, as you're talking, I'm thinking about the, the election, the, uh, actually. Um, and mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, it sort of fits into that scenario, doesn't it? Or the people who think that the election, that, that uh, Biden didn't win the election. And, uh, but the people who need to defend it perhaps aren't doing too well or don't know how to do it, even though <laughs> you won the election. I don't know. I'm kind of going off a tangent here, but that's what it reminded me of. Okay, so that's just as critical. We have to have those people and we have to be able to um, defend all, as you say in the book, the good stuff that's happening, the people who are going ahead doing something about climate change. Um, but cl- look, can we get back to it? Like, talking about climate change as it is right now, just in the, you know, context of your book. And Mm -hmm. it seems to me, and this is, I don't know if this is despair, you know, you talk about the difference between hope and despair. Um, uh, You know, by 2050, I read that Miami's going to be underwater, New York City is going to be underwater, Boston's going to be underwater, um, Cape Cod is on its way. Um, So are we right now in the midst of despair and not hope? Yeah, I think that there is a real sense of fatalistic despair right now. And it's not because we can't imagine a world, uh, you know, a technical means by which we would relocate people who live in low-lying areas or take care of people who contract zoonotic plagues as habitat loss drives animals into contact with humans. It's because we can't imagine the political will to do it. And so we know technically that it's possible. Look, you could give every person on earth the energy budget of a Canadian, which is like the energy budget of an American, but even colder, you could do that just by capturing 0.4% of the solar rays that reach the Earth's surface, right? We don't really have an energy problem. We have an organizational problem. And we just can't imagine tackling the organizational challenge of getting together and building the solar capacity and um, uh, rationalizing our distribution grid here in California where I live, we can't imagine wrestling control of the distribution grid away from the arsonists at uh, PG&E who keep setting our, our, our forests on fire by not maintaining their high energy lines. They just seem inevitable. And you know, there are lots of times in our history where we have confronted technical challenges, where we knew how, how to do the technical stuff, but we couldn't figure out the political will, where we have managed it. And it starts by changing the story we tell ourselves. You know, the, the people around us who think that um, nothing can be done and so don't militate for, for muscular action for things to be done, those people have been convinced that um, even if the problem is real, there's nothing that they can do about it. They're engaged in, in indifference. And there's a point where indifference reaches a peak, right? No matter how nihilistic you are, eventually you start to care, right? When your own house burns down, when the pandemic comes to you, when the flood destroys your home, when you can't leave your house because of smoke or soaring temperatures or floods, then you start to care. And the trick is to get people to care before the point of no return, so that denial doesn't turn into nihilism. You know, if you want people to care about rhino populations, you can just wait long enough. Eventually, there'll just be one rhino left. But by that point, the response is just as likely to be, hey, we might as well find out what he tastes like, because there's no coming back from it. 
And so this is where stories come in. By imagining how we could work our way through it, by countering the 40 years of neoliberalism that, as Margaret Thatcher said, tried to convince us that there is no alternative. You know, that, that's the, the most anti-science fiction idea I can imagine. There is no alternative. You know, my job is to think of six alternatives before breakfast every day. What Thatcher <laughs> meant was not there is no alternative. What she meant is stop trying to imagine an alternative. Just go along with what I tell you, because it's not an ideology, it's an inevitability. And it's not. It's contingent. We can change the way things work. We have free will. The future is not running on streetcar tracks. It's got a steering wheel. And, and we get to decide where it goes. And that's why I'm far more interested in science fiction as a vehicle for inspiration and scenario exploration than for prediction. Like, what could be more dismal than the idea that the future is predictable? Because if it's predictable, then what we do doesn't matter. And I assure you, what we do matters. I don't think the, fu the future isn't predictable. I started reading one of uh, Stephen Hawking's bo book, which I have to keep reading over and over again. And uh, I, I think that was one of the takeaways, that the future isn't necessarily predictable and, and that, that things happen, that chaotic things happen. Well, climate change, for instance. Um, and yeah, so it isn't predictable and we can do something about it, like you said. But it, I think I read in the beginning that the effort has to be global, it has to be a global effort. How, I mean, how, you know, you're talking about we have to get together as a, it can't be just us here in the United States uh -huh. or somebody in Europe or other wherever. It has to be a global effort. How do we do that? So all politics are coalitions, right? It's about weaving people together. You know, in this book, the coalition that's fighting to, to end the, the work to, to help us get through climate change is a coalition of, you know, billionaire wreckers who've taken to the high seas after that we raise taxes on billionaires in the U.S. and they float around the Pacific in a, in a giant um, uh, armada made up of dis decommissioned aircraft carriers and super yachts and cruise ships trying to convince people to use Bitcoin. And then onshore... They've got their own uh, shock troops of sort of MAGA-addled uh, amosexuals who are convinced that uh, Ayn Rand is a, is a suggestion and not a warning. And, you know, together they're, they're getting stuff done. And, and there's a counter coalition that runs to that, uh, a kind of coalition of the willing who, who have been inspired to believe that something can be done. And in the book, it starts with something very contingent, which, you know, when you look back on history, every great change starts with something contingent, something that you know, came out of left field, something that wasn't expected. I mean, think now of how our politics are so weird on corporate control, where you have Lena Kahn running the Federal Trade Commission, who's the most radical, effective chair of the Federal Trade Commission has had in generations. And the only reason she got in is that uh, a few MAGA Republicans were really angry at big tech because they thought they were being censored on Twitter. And so they backed her when the Democrats put her forward. And now she's got Amazon in court. They're taking Google to court. They're blocking mergers like Microsoft Activision. You know, we're seeing stuff that like we couldn't have uh, imagined just five years ago. And in the same way in this book, you get this just kind of historical accident where it starts in Canada with an election where the two main parties are pretty sure that one of them is going to win. That's what happens in every Canadian election. I'm a Canadian. We're like Americans. We're everywhere and we look just like everyone else, but we're, uh, but we're different from you. And, and these, these, um, Canadians are convinced that one of the two big parties is going to win. And so the third party, the, the Social Democratic Party, we're called the New Democrats, 
they decide to allow an indigenous woman to lead them into the election because they're convinced that there's no way they can win. And through no fault of, of this social democratic party, the other two parties implode in their own October surprise scandals, leaving this woman to become the surprise prime minister of Canada. And she arrives in office just at the moment that Calgary is once again washed away by a flood. Calgary is Canada's Houston, not just because it's in the middle of the oil patch, but because we keep letting people build in a floodplain and then bailing them out every time they get flooded away. And she says, look, we're not doing this. We're moving Calgary off the floodplain. And the relief from the country that finally someone's taking it seriously gives her the political capital to then move on to larger, more ambitious programs, replacing Canada's main air corridors with high-speed rail, allocating tons of funding for solarization and winterization. And when that happens, they call it the Canadian miracle. The Canadian people fall in behind her. Young people who have been despairing all their lives of having a hope of a future see the hope there. And that inspires young people all over the world. And pretty soon you have this kind of exchange program, uh, maybe a little like the Peace Corps. They call themselves the Blue Helmets. And they they go all over the world and work with local people to create more blue helmets, to do things like rescue London when all of central London is flooded when the Thames estuary barrier bursts, or to um, uh, uh, rewild Miami as a mangrove swamp after it finally sinks, uh, or to do all the other really important work that needs to be done, permanent refugee housing um, and, and solarization, weatherization, high-speed rail, uh, uh, relocating whole cities. And, and each time a project is successful, it inspires more people to come forward. Uh, you know, there are so many people who are just asking, how can I safeguard my future? And having been denied any real answer by this kind of neoliberalist idea that the only way to get a better future is to shop more carefully, right? To, to buy the right products as an individual or recycle harder. And, and this is something that has completely failed to deliver anything like a decent future as, as anyone could have predicted. They fall into despair, but they're waiting for someone to give them hope. They're waiting for someone to tell them that there are big, bold collective projects we can undertake that can do it. And when those projects emerge, people show up. So do you need a perfect storm for this? I mean, you mentioned, you know, you have, uh, say, a, a, a leader or someone in politics who no one expected would be uh, would be that kind of a leader. You know, like you have a, a supposedly conservative leaders uh, who is uh, um, backed by liberals or you need uh, do you need the old people? the elderly, as I mentioned in the beginning, to die off, that the demographics, the population begins to change? Um, because I, I would assume that that makes a huge difference uh, in, in terms of what we've been talking about. Um, so, or, or some other, you know, um, incident or some other political incident or, you know, sort of a whole range of things that have to emerge before this can happen. What you need is the, the, the right uh, uh, vision within a wide set of people so that when the opportunities arise, they, they aren't missed. Um, you know, we, we saw 
something very close to this with, with um, Sanders' campaign, where you had a, a kind of a dark horse candidate came up out of nowhere and nearly became president. We came within a whisker of it. We saw things like this with Occupy. With each one of these, we are building a larger and larger movement. Um, you know, my, my arch nemesis is, and, and everyone should have an arch nemesis, yeah. is, a, is a guy called Milton Friedman, who was Ronald Reagan's court sorcerer and kind of the author of all of our misery. And Friedman had this, these really terrible ideas. You know, he, he looked at all the gains, the post-war gains of the New Deal, where, you know, people were able to send their kids to university and have a dignified retirement and not starve if they lost their jobs. And he said, we need to get rid of all of this. Now, there are good critiques of the New Deal, right? It wasn't as racially inclusive as it could have been. It wasn't as gender inclusive as it could have been. It neglected um, other forms of gender politics among sexual minorities. And all of the movements to uh, bring the benefits of the New Deal to those people were underway when Friedman was working. That was what he was opposed to. He wasn't, he wasn't one of those people who was like, well, it didn't go far enough. He wanted us all to go back to being forelock-tugging plebs who, who knew who our social betters were. And people would say to him, like, Milton, nobody wants that. How are you going to convince people to go back to that? And he would say, in times of crisis, ideas from the periphery can move to the center in an eye blink. Our job is to keep these ideas lying around so that when the crisis strikes, uh, the impossible can become the inevitable. And, and Friedman was wrong about his politics, but he was absolutely right about that. And I like to think that when he hears my words in his mouth, he looks up from that spit he's roasting on and gargles a curse around the red hot iron bar as the demons laugh and turn the spit faster. But you know, if it worked for him, it can work for us. Having the idea that um, there is a way through and that that way lies through solidarity and through the deployment of planned, sane technology that takes the climate emergency with the gravitas and urgency that it demands means that when the crisis comes, and there are so many crises coming, that we will step in and do it. This book is not a roadmap. It's a, a, a kind of thought experiment about what would happen if a crisis arose, and instead of doing the same thing we did last time, only harder and hoping for a different outcome, we actually did the things that we suspect would work. And if you have that idea in your head that that is a thing we could do, that it's not impossible, maybe it becomes a thing that we actually do do. So how does AI fit into this? Oh, it doesn't. I think AI is pretty silly. I think I think it's just a, it's just cryptocurrency. It's another pump and dump bubble. Look, there are a lot of cool things you can do with AI, but they don't make any money, right? If I was a fourteen-year-old Dungeons and Dragons player, I'd be spending all day long getting Midjourney to make cool pictures of my characters. And you know, I, I was recently at a meeting in in Italy, and I met a European Union official who's been blind from birth who uses an AI app that uh, he points his camera at things and it, it describes them to him. All those things are great, but, you know, you add them all up and they don't pay for enough money to keep the servers on. You know, every every one of those queries is costing a, a little less than a dollar every time you type a prompt into one of those those uh, AI prompts. And, and the stuff that actually has real social utility is not stuff that saves money, but stuff that costs money, right? Like if we were going to take AI 
and give it to radiologists. This is one of the applications everybody likes to talk about. You give AI to radiologists and it will try and catch the, the things that they miss. Now, that would be great, right? It'd be really great to have something that kind of acts as their radiological equivalent of that thing in your car that when you uh, turn on your turn signals, if there's someone in your blind spot, it gives you a little beep to, to remind you of it. But that's not how they're selling AI to radiology departments. The pitch to radiology departments is fire half your radiologists and replace them with AI. And that's not a thing that gets you fewer mistakes when your chest x-ray is being looked at. That's the thing that gets you more mistakes. And, you know, if they can't convince people to spend money on AI that um, costs more money to use, then the AI isn't going to be around for those low value but uh, or low, low uh, um, you, you know, pe- applications for people who don't have a lot of money, like kids who want to make their D&D characters or blind people who want to narrate their scenes. They just won't be able to keep the servers on to help those people use it as well. It's just a boondoggle. There's some cool stuff that we'll probably get out of it when the dust settles, when the bubble pops. But, you know, the, the fact that everybody's question about everything is what about AI? And the fact that a year ago, everybody's question about everything is, well, how does cryptocurrency affect this? And the fact that today cryptocurrency is recognized as just a criminal conspiracy dressed up as math tells you that we're probably just talking and thinking way too much about AI. AI is not going to take your job. You know, the thing that we should be worried about is that AI is going to give your boss the tools to micromanage you until you want to strangle them, right? It's going to watch your pupils to figure out whether or not you're looking up when you're thinking or daydreaming while you're at your job. This is something that we already see in the Amazon vans where drivers' pupils are being monitored by AI and they're having their pay docked and getting, you know, stuff taken off of their uh, disciplinary record for for looking away too long or for, you know, uh, uh, making a turn that the AI doesn't like. Uh, you know, the, having, having a robot as your boss is going to suck, but it's not going to save the world. And it's not going to be ultimately very important, except as a reason to organize more trade unions. So, it, it, I mean, you've been talking mainly about AI in terms of like the individual, right? But what I, I'm trying to, what about in terms of solving problems on, because I was asking you about like global the question, you know, a, a global answer to climate change, let's say, you don't see that as something that could uh, bring us together to help resolve. I mean, you've mentioned the negatives of AI, but what about some of the positives in, in that kind of a context? Well, I'm not sure what you mean here. Like, will chatbots convince people that the world needs saving? I don't think so. Will applied statistics help us build better solar panels? Sure, we're already doing that. And the next generation of applied statistics will do more of that. But it's, it's you know, like the idea that this is groundbreaking. Look, I'll give you an example. I, I recently was hanging out with a programmer friend of mine. I came up in the tech industry. And, and he said, there's this kind of programming called CSS. That's just, it's, it's really janky. It's hard to get right. You spend all day trying to make it right. And he can go to a large language prompt, uh, uh, an LLM, an AI chatbot. And he can say, like, you know, design a CSS that works for me. And it gives him something that's pretty good and he can tweak and fix. And he's like, that's going to put all the programmers out of work. And I said, dude, we have had, um, programming tools every two years for the last 50 years that had some kind of error checking or some kind of error correction or some kind of hinting. This is a good example of that. It's not the best one we've had in 50 years. And no one ran around saying it's the end of computer programmers just because we got a slightly better tool. 
these are interesting new tools that bring some productivity gains to some sectors of the economy, but they're not like you don't sprinkle AI on something and get a solution to the climate emergency. For one thing, running the data centers associated with doing this kind of intensive processing is hugely climate damaging. The carbon intensity, the amount of water that they run through as, and, and their chillers is, is nuts. I think it's far more likely that we can do something about the climate emergency by getting rid of most of these servers than by adding more data to them. Okay. Well, then let's get back to your book, which is um, science fiction and presenting the problem to us and putting it it's it's in a novel form science fiction form how many in in terms of change i mean your book um it will help us to understand climate change and to be hopeful and to want to do something about it um as a science fiction writer author activist and journal i guess as i mentioned before isn't you're part of the change. You're part of making us aware of what's happening and what we can do about it and being more hopeful, I'm assuming. Right. And yeah, that's the plan. Sure. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's good. The idea here is to like, you know, what science fiction can do is it can, it can make you rethink stuff that you assume is an eternal verity, but is really something quite modern and, and something that we might as well get rid of or that we can easily reconsider. So, you know, for example, we think of material abundance as, as being uh, living in a world in which everybody has one of everything that they'll ever need, right? So, you know, I, um, I'm a homeowner. A couple of times a year, I need to make a hole in a wall somewhere. I've got a drill. I've got my own drill. Now, because I only do it twice a year, I've got like the minimum viable drill, this crappy thing that, you know, the best thing you can say about it is it doesn't explode into white hot shrapnel every time I hang a picture. And that is considered to be material abundance. But, you know, there's a version of the future in which um, instead of us owning all these single-use things that are so energy-intensive, not very good, that we have to pay to maintain and, and that we have to store and find space for, where there's just kind of a cloud of circulating location-aware drills in our neighborhood designed to gracefully decompose back into the material stream at the end of their duty cycle because they're not designed on market principles. They're designed on ecological principles where every time you use them, they gather telemetry about their use so that the next drill that's made learns from the the things that happen with this drill when it's used. Um, and, And where you have more material abundance, right, where that's better, than the world in which everyone has the crummy drill or the crummy lawnmower or the crummy set of dishes that they break out as extra dishes when they have more company or the crummy folding table where we could have really high quality stuff that was um, uh, communally managed through digital systems um, and that got better every time. And, you know, I think of that as being as important to resolving the climate emergency, changing the way that we think of what our material needs are as anything else. And you can imagine it as being, you know, comparable to the difference between living in a world where everyone has to carry a roll of toilet paper around in their handbag because there isn't toilet paper where they need it. Yeah, that's a world where everyone's got their toilet paper and a world that is obviously much better, where 99.9% of the time when you need toilet paper, there's some toilet paper there. And it's not your job to manage it except in your own home. That is like a much better world. And that's the world I think that we could devise for a lot of our technical, energy-intensive, climate-intensive tools. We don't need to move to a world where we have less. We can move to a world where we have more, but where that more uh, frees us up from 
some of the burdens of ownership that we have now. It's kind of the, the leftist progressive version of this nonsense you hear from the World Economic Forum about the Great Reset that's got everybody going crazy on the right, where they say, oh, you're not going to own anything. When they say you're not going to own anything, what they mean is you're going to pay rent on everything. That, you know, you're, it's going to be like inkjet printers, but for, uh, for everything, you're going you're to have a monthly subscription fee for all of it. But there's another version where, like, we collectively own all the stuff that we need that we don't use all the time, the way that we collectively own the sidewalk and the road, where it's it's much better than it would be if we each had to maintain our own little patch of sidewalk. I'm going to interrupt you there because I like that, by the way, because uh, we have 30 seconds left. So we want people to go out and read the book, The Lost Cause, a solar punk science fiction novel of hope amidst the climate emergency. And I've been talking to Corey Doctorow, author of the book, uh, website or websites we can go to for more information yeah. about what, yeah, quickly. Pluralistic.net is my newsletter and blog. It's got links to all my books. Lost Cause is a national bestseller, so it's for sale all over the country, every every bookstore you want to go into. Uh, and I should also mention, I coined uh, the American Dialect Society's Word of the Year, which you can Google because you can't say the word on the air. The, it's, it's got a word that the FCC doesn't like, but you can go check it out. Okay, great. Thank you. Thanks for being on the show, Corey, Dr. Rowe. Thank you. It's my pleasure. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. 